The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. My name is Linda House. I'm the Executive Vice President of External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, and I am sitting in this week for your host, Kim Tebaldo, who is the President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, and we are one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide, online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, and also by a telephone helpline, and that number, which we will repeat later in the show, is 1-888-793-9355. Desmond Tutu once said, Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. Myself, having spent 14 years working in the acute and hospice care setting, I know firsthand the positive impact of hope, as well as as the devastation of false hope. And I've also seen the fine line between the two. I've also learned that hope can come from unexpected places. I'm really excited about today's show, and you are about to hear from two wonderful guests, and I think that you'll understand why I speak about hope coming from unusual places and unexpected places. Joining us today to talk about innovation in medicine, we have Dr. Jonathan Sackner Bernstein, and we also have Elena Simon. They're going to give us many reasons to be hopeful about future medical treatments for cancer, as well as to help us understand what it takes for something to go from an idea to a reality. An engineer and cardiologist... Dr. Jonathan Sackner Bernstein is an internationally recognized clinical researcher and expert in the development and regulation of medical products. He served as Associate Center Director for Technology and Innovation at the FDA's Center for Devices and Radiological Health, where he launched the Center's Innovation Initiative and the White House FDA Entrepreneurs in Residence Program. Dr. Sackner Bernstein also initiated the relationship between the FDA and an organization, the acronym is DARPA, which stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's a project between the FDA and the Department of Defense. And he was recently recruited to provide scientific, technical, engineering support for DARPA's new Biological Task for Tactics Office. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure to be part of it. You have a very esteemed background. I'm eager to get into uh, into our conversation. 
Um, and later in our show, we will be joined by 18-year-old Elena Simon, who was inspired and motivated by her own cancer journey, um, where she initiated a study of a very rare hepatocellular carcinoma. It's a childhood carcinoma, and she was diagnosed with this when she was 12 years old, and um, we're eager to speak with her this afternoon as well, and you'll, you'll understand why. So, Jonathan, I want to start with you. What makes something an innovation? It's, it's, it's really a great question because people talk about innovation in so many different fields in so many different ways, and I think the critical part is to have the context around the term. The first thing that most people think about when they hear the word innovation is they think about invention. So they'll think about uh, an Einstein. I mean, excuse me, comes up, uh, they won't think about an Einstein who comes up with an idea, but they'll think about an Edison who comes up with a light bulb. And that's not the way innovation needs to be thought about when we're discussing and thinking about how to advance people's health, how to cure diseases or at least manage the diseases, how to improve people's lives. It's, it could be a thing could be a service, could be something you patent, or it could be a way of thinking, uh, a recognition that there's more to a situation than others had understood, which opens the doors to people who follow to come up with additional solutions. So it's really about taking creativity and moving it to a spot where there's an opportunity to apply it so it has some impact. So that's very interesting, and I love the the, the open, creative uh, feel of that. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the introduction is that hope and innovation can come from unexpected sources. And uh, you've often said that some of the most important medical innovations were not created by doctors or medical researchers at all. Um, can you just say more about some of these innovations? Well, it's, it's, an, it's a whole way of thinking about how to innovate that, that Many people have. I remember a teacher early on telling me that the, the folks who come up with the greatest engineering and medical breakthroughs are not just those who come up with an engineering or a medical breakthrough. There are people who frequently are taking an observation or an idea or a product or thing from one field and understanding how to apply it differently. And, and I don't think there's any better medical breakthrough than the one that I consider the greatest medical innovation of the last century and a half, um, which most people don't think of as a medical innovation. It's the light bulb. Uh, let me just take you back a little ways to the year 1901 when then-President McKinley was shot by an assassin. They rushed him off to the hospital, and in 1901, the way they would operate is with windows in the operating room, mirrors to reflect the light, and some candles. And the surgeons were basically operating by feel for the most part. Um, unfortunately, McKinley did not recover. But what was really interesting was that Thomas Edison, wanting to do something for his president, went up to Buffalo, took some equipment, including a light bulb, which was available, but the doctors didn't want to use it because they were worried that it might cause a spark. Or they didn't know how to use it. Now, you or I, if God forbid we need an operation, are lucky enough to have a surgeon who can see what he or she is doing when they're operating on us. And that saved countless of lives, countless numbers of lives, and certainly was not intended as a medical device. Hmm. It's very interesting. And I think, you know, for our listeners, some of the other 
um, some of the other innovations, while not focused on uh, on the medical field, um, that happened by accident. I think about post-it notes. You know, and the stories of the 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 gel not being just strong enough to be a strong adhesive, but a, a minor adhesive. And um, I also think about some when we think about drugs in particular that may have been studied for one use. So, for example, a drug that may have been um, originally examined as an antiviral, having anti-cancer properties. Um, and the importance of you know just being able to stay open to to, to those findings. Right, and a, a great example is the drug thalidomide, which uh, back in the in the fifties uh, uh, was used as a, an anti nauseant, an anti emetic, so that pregnant women who had morning sickness could function better and feel better. A great target, a great motivation, very important. Certainly with each of our three children, my wife wishes, probably wishes still that I had come up with something to help her with her morning sickness. The problem was it caused um, a really horrible uh, malformation where the extremities basically didn't form normally. Uh, a disaster, hundreds and hundreds of kids and families affected. Fast forward to the 1990s where an innovation was the recognition that certain chemicals in the body, certain cytokines, made certain cancers uh, able to resist chemotherapy, able to take over the body, kill people. And then on top of that idea, that recognition, people went back and realized, scientists found that thalidomide actually blocked those chemicals, those cytokines, and it was tested for a variety of cancers now and has been transformative for thousands of people now as a drug that can save lives despite its bad history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and so, and so to that point, when you're thinking, so, so if I'm a listener and I'm thinking, so who, who really regulates the, the testing of these agents to make sure that they're safe in me now when they might have not been safe in a particular use before, um, there's a whole process that a medication or device has to go through before it is approved for, for patient use. So can you just break down for us what are the steps that are in place from an idea to having a product available for patients to use? Okay, well, what, there, there are different pathways depending whether it's a drug or biologic, and so a biologic you can think of as a protein or a cell therapy, and then uh, for devices, so things, engineered devices that can be used or implanted. There are two different pathways, and I think most people see uh, reports and hear about and have more exposure to the drug world. So I'm just going to talk about that as the paradigm, as the model. There basically are three phases of drug development for people, phase one, two, and three. Um, And as you go from that first stage through the third stage, the goal there, both of the people who are developing it as well as the regulators, the Food and Drug Administration, is to make sure that there's the appropriate balance between allowing things to move forward and making sure that people are safe while those products are moving forward. So there's that tension. How much risk am I willing to accept? What's the potential benefit that I could imagine? How bad is this disease or disorder? Should I, is it justified to take more chances because people are likely to die if I don't do something? Or is it more of a, an, an aggravating condition where, therefore, I don't want to take as many chances. And I think that both the developers and the regulators have a, have a very tough time. It's a very difficult question, understanding how to balance the speed at which you move and the safety 
with which you apply. So that as you go from one to two to three in the phases, more people are exposed and you learn more about it. And from the perspective of a person with a disease or disorder, as you go into studies in phase one, you actually can't know as much about the drug because it hasn't been used. Once a drug gets to phase three, the doctors know a lot more about it, so you can have a markedly higher level of confidence about what you're going to see, but you still can't know. There still is that tough question of how much risk should one accept depending on your condition and the other alternatives. Great. We are going to cover a lot more of this. We've got to take a quick commercial break, and we've just gotten started with you. Thank you so much. This is great information, and we will dig a little bit deeper after the commercial break. When we return, we will continue this conversation with Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein about innovation and medical care. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Celgene and ASI. I am Linda House, today your guest host, and we are talking innovation with Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Harvard freshman Elena Simon, who initiated a very rare Um, who initiated a study, I should say, of a very rare form of liver cancer, which she was diagnosed with when she was 12. It's a really great story, so I hope that you will stay through the show to hear from her. Jonathan, we were just talking about the development process, so taking an innovation from idea to patient, and you were talking about the different phases. I was just wondering if you could speak to how long of a process is that? Is that a short-term or long-term? The... 
the time from starting the first clinical trials to getting to market is generally measured in years. And the, the sponsors of a study and the FDA will work together to, to make that as short as possible in the context of having enough confidence to say that a, that a drug or a biologic are safe and effective or a device has a reasonable assurance of safety and effectiveness. Sorry for throwing in that terminology that's a little uh, from my experience as a regulator, but that's the legal requirement. So um, it, it will take years, but I think that there's, there's a point well before a product gets to market where it's already important for people who are suffering with a, with a disease or disorder, with cancer. Um, and that's what you were alluding to at the very beginning, which is hope. Uh, one of the problems that I see for the, that the innovator faces is how to get to that first clinical trial, which can be a period that takes several years in and of itself and is a little less clear, uh, especially if you're developing very innovative products. So if you can get even into clinical trials with an innovative product, what that means is that somebody's suffering from a disease who's worried about how long they're going to live or how well they're going to live now starts to believe that there's a possibility. They start to see the hope. They start to react differently. And when when you take care of patients or you live with someone who's got a, a life-threatening disease, when you see them realize there's hope, you see the quality of life go up dramatically. So even getting a product into clinical trials or advancing into later clinical trials, I think, is very important landmark for people. Mm-hmm. So, so speak to the the medical community. How receptive are they to engaging in the process of innovation and um, and, and helping in the clinical trials, and then um, early adopting? You know, when a, a solution is available. Well, it's actually a really complicated question, and and I would imagine that that a lot of the the bigger companies that are in the business of developing new products spend a lot of time wrestling with this question. We certainly wrestled with it when I was at the FDA, and and one of the the things that we see as a distinction is that there are many many doctors and many health professionals who are very comfortable with the investigation of new products. Whereas if you're dealing with something that's very innovative, that's very unusual, that breaks the standard treatment paradigm, I think there's, uh, there's a part of human nature that's resistant to that. There are certainly philosophers who have written about this. Thomas Kuhn is well known in the field of the history of medicine, talking about the fact that for the major breakthroughs, it's not just about the breakthrough. It's, it's also about the timing and the the conditions in the field, whether the field is ready for a breakthrough. Um, and, and so that's a big part of it. So I think that the field is not always as ready for an innovation as we would hope it would be, but usually over time that transformation happens pretty quickly. Great. And then um, two-part question. I think we have a general idea of what the FDA does, um, but what, in fact, is its mission, and when did the FDA um, and the government become actively involved in medical treatments? So the FDA was was founded uh, over 100 years ago uh, in response to a whole series of of events and, and has had its authority broadened over the last century when there have been issues that have arisen where people have been hurt. 
Um, and it, it gets to the first part of its mission statement that focuses on protecting and promoting public health. So the goal of the FDA is to make people have healthier, longer lives as best as that can be accomplished. The second part of the FDA mission statement talks about speeding innovations to people. So the, the mission really is both on trying to make people have more options for better health and fostering innovation. And one of the things that's been lost in, uh, uh, in the eyes of the public, certainly in the way the media covers the FDA, is that second part um, of fostering innovation. Uh, the FDA is filled with an incredible number of scientists who have broad and deep expertise that's as impressive as any medical school. Um, now, they have to function within a set of laws, regulations, statutes, but uh, they are really balancing on a, on a daily basis how much the risk uh, of, of letting something go forward when there's uncertainty about what it'll do to people is compared to the risk that people face who have no alternatives. So think of a, a person with advanced pancreatic cancer. Uh, there are chemotherapy uh, regimens that can shrink tumors, but basically your lifespan is not typically affected much by these chemotherapies that are available. In that setting, uh, I think the, the, the reaction by a regulator would be, well, we need to actually be more flexible if something looks like it has promise, because if we add excessive delays or inappropriate delays, then people are going to die waiting. On the other hand, there needs to be some degree of time applied to make sure that a company manufactures the product right, that there's not uh, evidence that suggests there might be some surprise, like there was for thalidomide when it was used in pregnancy. So that is the mission of the FDA, to protect and promote health. And based on how it's charged by the laws Congress passes, it usually ends up being forced to err on the side of moving slower and more cautiously, but there are many within the agency working every day to try to speed that up and make it more efficient. Mm-hmm. And for good reason. We want to make sure that, that when the, the public has access to something, it's safe uh, for their use. You know, you have argued passionately, and I say that in a positive way, that a key component in innovation in medicine is real and substantive dialogue between patients and everyone involved in the development, utilization, and process of their medicine and and care. And I believe that your exact words were something around lock them in a room together. (laughs) And I and everyone at the cancer support community firmly believe this, that the, and and we have research now that would say that, that, that patients really not only want, but need to be a part of this, of of the process. Um, So I understand why, why we would say it because we're so close to hearing that. Um, But, but how did you come to the conclusion and, and what made you really become so passionate about this? Well, uh, in addition to locking the the innovators and the developers and the patients in the room together, what I really would like to add to that is locking Congress in that room. Now, as soon as you mention anything about Congress, most people will either respond with their political leanings or with a, a roll of the eyes because of how little appears to be accomplished. 
But the key here is that whatever the FDA wants to do is going to be driven by what Congress tells it it's allowed to do and supposed to do. So they need to be locked in the room at the same time. And the key here is for everyone to understand, and, and I think, uh, you know, we have a fairly pejorative medical system here, so patients don't always get all the information that's necessary for them to play an active role in these kinds of discussions. But the key is to say, where is risk worth taking? So I've advocated that if we pick a, a disease like pancreatic cancer, where there's basically no hope, and we look at some of the new innovative ways of treating it, so not necessarily just another chemotherapy drug, but a device or, or a biologic or something that somebody comes up with that I can't even imagine or you can't even imagine, where there's literally no scientific way to test in animals and predict whether it's going to be safe or not, well, maybe we need to then say, okay, for the sake of hope and for the sake of giving it a chance, it should go right into human trials and skip animal trials. Because if the animal trials don't predict what's going to happen in people, mm-hmm. why would you torture the animals and waste the time and money? Mm-hmm. Um, so getting to some of those ideas and figuring out how to turn them into pathways that are real and can be used to conquer some diseases, I think, is a, a very important challenge. And People can dance around it, or we can lock them in the room together and see what we can come up with. And, and we, we will be there with you, I promise. <laughs> Sounds good. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. We have just scratched the surface uh, on this topic of innovation. Um, I am going to ask that you promise that you'll come back um, very shortly and we'll continue uh, this conversation because it's so incredibly important and I think helpful for this for, for the dialogue. So I'm, I'm asking you to go on air and go on record that you'll come back soon. Uh, I know we're being recorded, and I promise to come back because I think there are also examples we can find that would give some people hope when they see what's coming down the road. Great. We'll get you back within the next couple of weeks. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and after the break, we'll be joined by Elena Simon and hear about her really interesting journey from cancer patient to cancer researcher all before turning 21 years of age. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Train, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. 
Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Genentech and Morphotech. I'm Linda House, the Executive Vice President for External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community, sitting in as your guest host for Kim Tebaldo, who is the President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Today, we're talking about innovation in medicine, and I'm happy to welcome to this particular segment, Ilana Simon, who is inspired and motivated by her own cancer journey to initiate a study on fibromedular hepatocellular carcinoma, which is a very rare form of liver cancer with which she has been diagnosed with since she was 12. Ilana is now an 18-year-old college freshman and is cancer-free. She is also a member of the research team that has identified a genetic abnormality that may cause this mysterious type of cancer. She's working with scientists at Rockefeller University, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and the New York Genome Center. Ilana participated in the 2014 White House Science Fair hosted by President Barack Obama, received the inaugural Young Champion in Cancer Research Award at the American Association for Cancer Research Annual Meeting in 2014, and has been published in Science Magazine. That's a lot for a a, a woman of your age, Ilana. Congratulations and thank you for your your hard work in that area. And for those of, of, of our listeners who think that it's all work for you and no play, you are also a dancer an aerial acrobat, and co-captain of your high school robotics team. So welcome to the show, Alana. Thank you. Glad to be here. So the, can- the National Cancer Institute estimates that there will be about 1.6 million new cases of cancer in 2014. Uh, you know, we recently did a show about male breast cancer, and there are only about 2,200 cases of male breast cancer diagnosed 
in uh, the United States every year, which seemed like a tiny subset of the total number of cancer diagnoses in a year um, until I discovered your particular type of carcinoma, which is even more rare with 200 adolescents and young adults affected every year. Um, And I'm sure that there are many of our listeners, myself uh, included, who have never heard of your type of cancer. So could you just please give us a little bit of information and describe it for us? So fibrolamellar is a relatively rare cancer that's mostly found in kids and young adults. So it's a pediatric cancer. And Mm -hmm. as you said, people don't know much about it because not many people are diagnosed with it. So... There's no current treatment for it that's very successful. So if it's caught early while it's still only in the liver, it can be resected from the body, which is, you know, the main cure as of now. But unfortunately, if it's found late and it started to spread, there aren't, it's not a very good prognosis, which can be scary. Um, So there are a few reasons it's found late, partially because, you know, people don't know much about this cancer. It's hard to diagnose it. So there may be more than... 200 cases per year, but people just never find it until it's too late. And also, because it's a pediatric cancer, when kids feel these stomach pains that are symptoms of this cancer, they don't automatically think, oh, it must be this rare liver cancer. So Mm -hmm. it's a pretty hard cancer to diagnose, and it's pretty hard to deal with also. Well, and so, so given your comments about that, what symptoms did, did you have? And t- talk to us about your diagnosis. So my diagnosis process was a bit of a struggle, as most people's are with this cancer. I'd had stomach pains for a long time before they could properly diagnose me. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I saw doctor after doctor. And you know, at first I thought it was lactose intolerance, which, I mean, apparently I have. But that wasn't the cause for the for the pain, and then they thought it was appendicitis, and for a while they said, oh, your, your cramps are just the stress of a preteen girl, and you're just being a bit of a drama queen, but clearly that wasn't the answer, and that didn't seem to explain why I always had these stomach pains, and that was pretty scary, because as a little kid, you always assume that doctors have the answer to everything. You know, you have some problem, you see a doctor, and they diagnose it, then fix it. I got to see the side of what happens when they don't actually know what the problem is. And that was one of the scariest parts of this whole process for me. But mm-hmm. thankfully, they eventually figured out that it was, you know, this rare pediatric liver cancer. And they caught it early enough that through an intense liver surgery in which they resected most of my liver because um, the tumor was the size of a grapefruit at the time. And I wasn't much bigger than that myself. But... Thankfully, they got out the entire thing, and I've been fine ever since. I was extremely lucky, but you know, most people don't actually get it diagnosed as early as I did, even though it wasn't actually that early. I had a long time of pain before they actually figured out what it was, but most people don't get such a fortunate prognosis because they have such trouble diagnosing it. Mm-hmm. And was there, was there one, um, one event that that triggered your diagnosis? Was there something that just fell into place that, that helped the team say, yes, this is it? Um, well, eventually the pain got extremely, extremely bad. Um, mm-hmm. And so because I thought it was appendicitis, I went to the, they sent me to the hospital, and that's when they did a scan and saw something, and then they did a biopsy and realized what it was, and they, they sent me to Memorial Sloan Kettering deal with. 
the tumor. And so um, there, there really isn't an effective drug treatment for the disease. And um, so surgical intervention is now the, the treatment option of choice. Is that what I am hearing from you? Yeah, that's the ideal treatment surgery. And there are different clinical trials going on for fibromyalgia, and people try different drugs, but as of now, surgery is the most effective by far. So, so, so tell our listeners, some may be young or some may have young um, children who are facing a cancer diagnosis. So what was it like to be a 12-year-old facing a cancer diagnosis when your friends are doing other 12-year-old activities? It wasn't what I would have chosen to spend you know, my sixth grade doing. Um, it was just weird because, you know, as a sixth grader, you just want to sit in and be able to hang out with your friends, but while they were all off having fun, I had to be alone in a hospital bed or, you know, alone in bed recovering. And it was just weird because I felt like none of them really knew what was happening. None of them could imagine what it's like, and they shouldn't have to. You know, no 12-year-old should be thinking about cancer and dying. They should be off in school thinking about their work and thinking about their friends and whatever interesting extracurriculars they're passionate about. Um, so it was just weird feeling, you know, removed from everyone else. Like, there's something fundamentally different about me that they didn't have. And I'd felt that for a while just because, you know, I constantly had these weird stomach pains that no one else was experiencing. So I always felt like there was just something fundamentally different, which is kind of scary for a little girl. Um, no, yeah, sure. it was weird, but... Eventually, I had other patients who had had cancer at such a young age, and it made me feel more normal, and it made me realize that it's not that bizarre to have cancer as a child. Well, and so, you know, to that point as well, what what advice would you give to adults or to children who may be facing uh, a similar experience? Um, really do whatever you feel is necessary to feel like you're in control of this disease and you're in control of your body, whatever's happening to you. You know, whenever you speak to a healthcare provider, take a notebook and keep notes to bring a voice recorder because you want to make sure that you understand all the key details. And personally, I always feel much safer when I completely understand the situation and what's going on which is why this diagnosis was pretty scary because no one knew much about the disease. So the first things I found when I tried to look it up were that, you know, it's rare, not people are diagnosed with it, no one knows what causes it or much about it, which is terrifying. But, you know, when you get your diagnosis, find out everything you can about the disease and all the different treatments and all the possible things you can do. Um, And actually, I've been in contact with a bunch of patients and helping them you know, actually get involved in this research and donate their samples and do whatever they can to feel like they're helping further this research. That way they can actually feel like they're in control of the cancer and they have some kind of power because that makes it much easier to go through this whole process and you feel like you have some sort of control. Yeah, sure. And so we have just a couple minutes before we go to break, but I would love to hear from you what, what really inspired you and gave you the courage or the confidence to pursue a study on your type of hepatocellular carcinoma? And how old were you when you took that step? 
So I was 16, and at first I didn't even think I was going to be studying this cancer. I actually um, just wanted to study cancer in general. I did not think that I could initiate a study myself, so I actually was just working in someone else's lab um, studying a different kind of cancer. But then I started learning about genetic sequencing, which is the kind of study I ultimately did on fibrolamellar, and I started realizing everything just seemed to be falling in place, and it made so much sense to do that kind of study on fibrolamellar. Um, I don't know. I never felt like I needed courage. It just felt like the right thing to do. And I've had such a great support system between you know, my surgeon and my dad, who's a scientist, so that it just made sense to me that if I had the tools to study this kind of cancer and I had the drive to do it, why not go for it? Well, and so just to be clear, you're 16 years old. At the time, you were 16 years old, and you were already doing cancer research. Yeah. Um, my freshman year, I spoke to one of the teachers at my school, and I expressed interest in studying cancer and getting an internship at a lab. So when I turned 16, and I was legally old enough to work in a lab. Um, she searched around the city and found a lab that was willing to have a high school student work for them. This is actually a surprisingly common practice. Um, which I was completely unaware of until I spoke to my teacher, and she said, yeah, tons of labs are willing to have students work for them. So that was pretty exciting for me. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, That's really amazing. So thank you so much for sharing that. We are going to quickly run to a commercial break. I would encourage our listeners to please stay with us, and we're going to hear more about Ilana's journey through becoming a a cancer researcher and some of the the impact that she's had um, already in, in her work. So we will be back right after this break. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Train, sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, Visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Millennium and Amgen. I'm Linda House sitting in today for Kim Tibaldo. And with us is Ilana Simon, who is a cancer survivor, a college freshman, and an accomplished cancer researcher. We were just speaking, Ilana, before the break about how you became a cancer researcher, and I loved your story. Um, You mentioned something, though, that you were studying in the lab, next-generation sequencing. And just for our listeners, can you explain a little bit about next-generation sequencing and, um, you know, really just give us an overview of what that is and why it's important to cancer research today? So just a bit of background in case people forget, DNA is the stuff in your body that basically encodes for everything you, you know, says what your hair is going to look like. It encodes for how your liver is going to work. It encodes for everything. So next-generation sequencing is part of this great new technology in which you can actually look at the sequences of people's DNA. So you look at the code that tells everything in your body how to work and what to do. So for the kind of next-generation sequencing study that I did, genomic sequencing, um, I looked at people's tumors and their adjacent, normal, healthy liver cells. Um, I looked at their liver tumors, and I compared the DNA sequences for the two. So that way you could see what was different about the tumorous liver cells from the normal, healthy liver cells, that we could try to figure out what these key differences were. And that's what I used to try to figure out what was driving this cancer, what were the mutations that were important versus the ones that were just due to random chance. And that's how I ended up finding this one mutation that actually seems to cause this cancer. Mm. So, so tell our listeners um, your experience. Um, you know, how did you pitch your concept? To whom did you pitch your concept? I understand that it was it was pitched to the chief of pediatric surgery at Memorial, but just sort of sort of walk us through um, that that whole process. So, this chief of pediatric surgery at Memorial was actually my surgeon, Dr. Michael Qualia, and Ever since I first met him, he's always been encouraging me to go into the medical field in some way, either become a surgeon or 
an oncologist or a doctor or a researcher. So when I came to him with this idea to study fibrolamellar, because he's one of the leading um, doctors in this field, um, he was extremely encouraging. He offered his help. He actually said um, he would have some of his surgical fellows mentor me and, you know, help me get this whole thing started because I didn't know how to do that myself. Um, and he said he would help me get the samples because since he's one of the leading surgeons for fibrolamellar, he has lots of patients going to see him, but relatively many patients considering how few people actually get this disease. Um, and so he actually helped me get this whole project started, which was incredible, and I was rather surprised because what surgeon looks at a 16-year-old girl and says, oh, yes, of course, I'll help you start a cancer um, research project. Well, thank goodness he did, (laughs) and his colleagues stepped up as well. Um, And so speaking of one of your colleagues, one of your colleagues is your dad, who runs a laboratory at Rockefeller University. How's working with your dad? Um, Much better than I expected it to be. Um, I was very nervous about working with him because I thought he'd be too involved or it would be weird because, I mean, he's my father. What 16-year-old girl wants to spend all her time working with her father? Um, <laughs> but before I even got the project started, you know, I was talking to him about this idea I had to study fibrolamellar um, while I was off working in the other lab. And he kept saying, you know, you actually can do that. I have space in my lab. And I was really hesitant, but he actually sat me down in this room with surgical fellows of Michael Aqualia from Sloan Kettering. Um, And he just put us all in a room, introduced us, and then said, okay, Alana, pitch your idea to them. And he just left, which (laughs) I thought was awesome because, you know, it left me to advocate for this project myself. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was kind of scary, but it showed me that he would let me be independent throughout this whole process. And it kind of set the stage for our parent-child dynamic going forward. And it let me know that it wouldn't be that weird working in this, working with him. Um, you know, he wouldn't constantly be looking over my shoulder, being, you know, being my father all the time. He would be a colleague, which has been awesome. It's kind of cool to work with him because we can go home over the dinner table and sit there talking about the work. Um, and we've always talked about the projects he's doing at home, but now we can talk about the projects that I'm doing and that we are doing. And, yeah, he's been really good about letting me have my space while still being helpful. And it's good because I think having him there has given me the confidence to work with some of these incredibly accomplished um, scientists. Sure. And what a great father-daughter project, be able to look back and, and, and talk about what you guys have been able to deliver. Um, you know, so few teenagers can say that their work has been published in a prestigious scientific journal, but yours certainly has. So can you tell us, um, just in simple terms, you, you explained a little bit with the, the um, next-gen sequencing, but, you know, what has your research revealed, and, you know, most importantly, what is the potential significance around that? So we discovered this one certain mutation that is present in every single patient, patient we've looked at so far, um, where there's this one deletion in your DNA, so that yeah. these two genes that are typically really far apart end up coming together and creating a new gene um, it's called an oncogene, which is basically a gene that when turned on causes cancer. So patients with fibrolamellar end up getting this weird new gene that seems to drive this cancer, and they only have it in their tumors. They have no trace of this weird mutation in their normal liver cells or in anything else in their body. 
Um, so now that we know that, we can work on more informed treatments and hopefully a diagnostic test. So as I said, it's kind of hard to diagnose rare diseases such as fibrolamellar. So if there could be a simple blood test to diagnose someone with the disease, that would be incredible, especially because of right now, early diagnosis is the key to survival. So that's actually what I've been working on this summer. Um, I'm trying to create a diagnostic test so that instead of having to go through a whole physical um, process of seeing different doctors and having them try to guess what be causing all these, all these symptoms and then having to go through you know, different scans and experience radiation, you can just take someone's blood and diagnose them with fibrolamellar, which would be incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand that you are working with the National Institutes of Health um, on a project as well, part of the next step in your research? Um, yeah, so this we've actually been working on for some time now. Um, it's a patient registry. So for rare diseases like fibrolamellar, most hospitals will only see one to two patients. Thus, no one can really have a lot of experience with the disease, which also contributes to the difficulty with diagnosis. So getting patients to share their medical records anonymously in this registry would mean that, first of all, researchers can share this larger collection of data so that any given hospital or researcher, instead of just having access to the few patients that are in their area with fibrolamellar, they can actually have, patient, they can have access to the data from patients around the world. So, you know, I had a lot of trouble getting samples for this study, but if I could be sharing the samples from hospitals around the world, that would make it so much easier to have a wide pool of data to look at. Um, Mm -hmm. So instead of having everyone struggle to get a little bit of data for their research, everyone can work together. Plus, if patients share their medical records anonymously onto this registry, they can actually have a key so that they can access their data from online when they go to see other hospitals. So if a patient goes to a hospital in New York, and then it goes to see another doctor in California, instead of having to carry around all their medical records and shopping bags, which people actually do, they can just easily download their data from online, which will make it so much easier for different hospitals to look at what other doctors have said for a given patient. Wow. Right, and talk about really, you know, empowering someone to be a part of the solution. You know, that's amazing. And Alana, we are out of time for today, and I just want to really thank you for the work that you're doing. It's really impressive. I'm so thankful that we have you focused on this and that um, that you'll just really change the face of cancer um, in the future. So thank you. Thank you for all you're doing, and congratulations on your success to date. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're so happy. That, it's, we're, we're so happy that you came on the show today telling us about the rare liver cancer um, and, and really raising awareness. So Um, It has been my pleasure for our listeners to have you join us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Um, Again, I'm Linda House, the Executive Vice President for External Affairs here at the Cancer Support Community. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, the Cancer Support Community does provide a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. And we are happy to connect you to Alana's work if you are so interested. Please email us if you have questions or suggestions for the show at news at cancersupportcommunity.org. For more information about our programs, you can visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or please call us at 1-888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. 
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.